0: Fifty years ago today, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution gave women the right to vote. This anniversary, a militant minority of women's liberationists was on the streets. So remember, man, if you come to work tomorrow
1: and your secretary refuses to do the filing and then go home and find that your wife has refused to do the cooking, don't blame them. Remember, you gave them the vote 50 years ago. In the midst of a pandemic, a black revolution and a white awakening are happening. Diversity, equity, and inclusion educators, Brianna Clover and Dr. Jessica Petty create brave spaces for candid conversations on race equity, focusing specifically on its intersection with ableism, sexism, sexual orientation, and gender identity, all from the unique perspective of a black woman and a white woman. I'm Brianna Clover. And I'm Dr. Jessica Petty.
0: In today's episode, after we recover from the audio recording, Jess and I are celebrating the 100th year anniversary of the 19th Amendment by taking a look back at history and then examining how things have changed over the last century. Bree, what
1: a great opportunity to discuss the history of the 19th Amendment. It's amazing to think about that winning the vote required 72 years of work. It spanned three generations of dedicated suffragists. And that means that by 1920, when the vote, when the 19th Amendment was uh, ratified, the women who launched the movement had already died. And the Mm -hmm. women that saw it through to the end hadn't even been born when it started. Of course, as an American tale, this story is also inevitably about race. From the beginning, women's suffrage was entwined with the efforts to emancipate and enfranchise the nation's Black citizens. And it was a complicated history. And so I would love to read a quick little excerpt from a, an amazing book that I read last year by Elaine Weiss, and it's called The Woman's Hour. And in it, um, I'm not going to paraphrase some, but in it, she talks about that at the close of the Civil War, leading suffragists Elizabeth Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Lucy Stone, and many other fellow suffragists believed that universal suffrage for Black men and for all women was just around the corner. And obviously, in retrospect, uh, they were a bit naive in their thinking. Yeah. But when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, obviously, that, that changed things quite a bit. And his successor was Tennessee Democrat, Andrew Johnson, who had been a slaveholder, but he had remained loyal to the Union Army. And he made it clear that he had no inclination to grant suffrage to women. And really and truly, during that time, there were a lot more oppressing things happening. Uh, Republican leaders have begun to complain that President Andrew Johnson was revealing his true sort of Southern sympathies with his yeah. lenient approach to reconstructing the rebellious states and pardoning their Confederate leaders, and this was undermining the spirit and the letter of emancipation. Mm-hmm. So, before the close of 1865, you see the Tennessee legislature was deliberating what they were calling black codes. And those basically restricted freedoms and movement of the freed slaves. And other southern states um, were also following with their own black codes. And the violence against freed black individuals was spreading. Mm -hmm. And particularly in Tennessee, a new paramilitary group sprang up composed of ex-Confederate soldiers who dressed in white robes and hoods. And they were riding under the banner of the Ku Klux Klan. And there were many, many other spasms of this white mob violence erupting in Memphis and New Orleans, and scores and scores Mm -hmm. of Black citizens were being killed. And so, obviously, alarm bells were ringing, and abolitionists were urging Republican allies in Congress to do something to offer protection. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And this is where we see the draft of a new constitutional amendment, the 14th began to circulate, and it meant to secure equal protection, due process, and civil and voting rights for all persons, but not exactly all persons. And so for the very first time in Section 2 of the proposed amendment, uh, the phrase male citizens appeared, Mm. where no other example of gender designation had ever been seen in the U.S. Constitution. Mm. So this was really about the rights of male citizens to vote. And the suffragists realized that their allies were sort of abandoning them at this moment. And it was for a combination of practical and political reasons. And for the abolitionists, this was a historic moment for them. And they needed to secure the protections of their citizens. Mm -hmm. And so you see amazing black male leaders like Frederick Douglass, William Lord Garrison, Wendell Phillips, Um, They all agreed that women should have the right to vote. But here's a quote from the book. They say, but the nation could not swallow two immense reforms at once. Mm. And the black man's very life depended upon his ability to protect himself from the vote. So Frederick Douglass basically said, um, the women's hour will come, but not today. Mm. I think that's important because... We see over the course of our history, there are so many things that we're not told, but then there's also just so many messy sort of parts of it that that we really need to be mindful of as we're telling these stories and and not just reduce them to sort of very simple and these wholesome events that happen like, oh, yay, women got the right to vote. Mm -hmm. And then we all move on and wear our yellow rose.
0: (laughs) Right. It should be a it's complicated. That should just be yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like a Facebook status. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So I really enjoyed doing the research. I learned so many incredible things. Seeing the propaganda and the ads that were created against voting just really blew my mind. So um, I had a lot of fun researching for this. And I'm curious, I'm sure there are things that popped up for you that uh, maybe you didn't know or really stood out. So I'd love to hear your perspective.
0: Yeah, first of all, thank you for sharing that historical context. I think it's so important. I think my first reaction was, this wasn't that long ago, you know? Mm. Um, But simply put, when we look at the 19th Amendment specifically, one word I think is missing there. It secured Mm. white women's right to vote. Right. The truth is, within the white suffrage movement, there were a number of racially discriminatory practices and oftentimes the condoning of white supremacist ideologies in order to garner Southern support for white women's voting rights. And you mentioned that when you shared that historical context, when we think about what's going on around this time, that that makes sense that 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 happened White women were fighting for gender equality, while African-American women were fighting for gender equality and racial equality. And I think this is where intersectionality comes into play. And we talk a lot about that in the work that we do. So in this context, I'd like to quote a legal scholar and a, a critical race theorist, Kimberly Prenshaw. She argues that, quote, racism and sexism intersect in a manner that compounds black women's oppression. And so if we take a look at the first major convention for women's rights, uh, the famous Seneca Falls in New York that was held in July, 1848, this convention was like the launch of the women's suffrage movement, which more than seven decades later led to oh. the insurance that women had the right to vote. But if we take a look at that specific event, I'd like to challenge us to take a critical note of this with an intersectional view. So if we look at this event with an intersectional View We ask ourselves questions of who were participants, who were there, uh, who was being, was benefited by this event. So if we look at the participants there, they were middle and upper class white women, a few white men supporters and one African American male Frederick Douglass. No black women attended the convention. None of them were invited. So I just thought looking at this moment in time that we celebrate the 19th amendment, taking a look at it from a critical race perspective is so helpful and important.
1: Absolutely. That's so interesting to think about. Mm. And even thinking of historically about that time, I mean, in 1848, just trying to imagine, you know, like how do you get women organized and how do you reach mm-hmm. people? And, and what does that even look like? And then to think about the lack of, inclusion within the voices yeah. mm-hmm. but still we use the word women's rights and we don't say white women that's what was meant right yeah exactly so that's why we always say words are so important and sometimes the lack of words exactly
0: <laughs> uh- <laughs> even more critical yeah. right
1: um, so it's it's interesting for me because I grew up in Nashville and you know Tennessee played a really critical role Role in the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And so I was taught a lot about that, but never from a racial perspective. The things that we were sort of told here it is, you know, hot summer of 1920, and, you know, Tennessee was on the hook to be the 36th state, which is what was needed to ratify the Mm -hmm. amendment. And States individually, up until that point, were able to give women the right to vote. And so that started happening as early as 1869 out in Wyoming, where they became Mm -hmm. the very first state to grant women the right to vote. And then other Western states followed. But you really saw a big influx of this around like 1910. Yeah. And Tennessee, actually, in 1919, was the 37th state. And they were actually the first Confederate, former Confederate state allow women to vote. But so what the amendment really was focused on was this idea that all states, women in all states would have the right to vote. Mm -hmm. Again, here we're missing the word white women, but that's really what I was taught. And so there are statues around the city and things like that, that really celebrate what happened. And You know, I've always had a a great sense of pride around that, that, you know, Tennessee played a role in that. And and in particular, there was all this activity in Nashville and, and the historic Hermitage Hotel is still here. And that's where so many of the activities happened. The more that I've done research, I realize how much I was not taught and how much I did Mm -hmm. not know about the full picture. But if I can stop for a moment and just share a ridiculous thing (laughs) that I've learned during my (laughs) Uh research, wow. So there was an argument against women having the right to vote that I had never heard before. And so I thought I'd share this with you. Yeah, This was widely accepted within the medical community that strenuous thinking harmed a woman's reproductive organs because it drained the blood from our ovaries and moved it to our brains.
0: Oh my goodness. Which
1: was, would endanger the continuation of the human species. And so that's a reason that people are afraid for women to get the (laughs) vote. I just, of all the things I had not heard, I was like, that one really, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Well, and that's, that, it just blows my mind because I don't even know why I'm surprised anymore. But when you take a look at even the history of gender and race equality, so many arguments from the medical community around preventing laws to to expand the influence and the rights of women and Black people and Indigenous, there's a lot of examples of the medical mm-hmm. community supporting that at the time. And yep. it just, Yeah. There's just so much, the more, the more I learn, the more my mind is blown. (laughs) So thank you for (laughs) sharing that weird, but important. I think it's important because if we think about the medical community today and the respect that we have, you know, like when we go to the doctor, we just expect that they were trained in that. So they know all things to do with medical. Well, yeah, very interesting. I think you've shared a lot of really good dates here. So I thought I'd transition to to think about, okay, so when did voting rights for black women, when were they protected? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until 45 years later when the Voting Rights Act of 1965 passed. And this was shortly following the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And essentially, the Voting Rights Act aimed to overcome barriers at both the state and the local levels that prevented African-Americans from exercising the right to vote. And if we think about in the context of this time, despite legislation, oftentimes African Americans were met with violence and even creative out-of-this-world barriers when they tried to exercise their right to vote. And one specific example of this is literacy tests. So Blacks attempting to vote were also often told by election officials that they either got the date wrong, the time or the polling place wrong, or that they possessed insufficient literacy skills to vote. And it's important to know also that the Black population at this time did suffer a high rate of illiteracy. And this was due to centuries of oppression and poverty, mm-hmm. something that they resiliently fought at every turn, including building their own schools, hundreds of them, when they weren't allowed to attend, attend white schools. But I thought that was just kind of an important piece of history to understand in the whole context of Black rights in general. Yeah. Yeah sometimes outlandish, they'd be asked to recite the entire constitution or explain the most complex provisions of state laws, which was a task likely that even most white voters wouldn't have been able to accomplish. I mean, I can't accomplish that. Yeah. Let's be real. (laughs) That's ridiculous.
1: (laughs) It is. Yeah. And I think it just highlights how slowly progress has happened. And, you know, We see it today, even, you know, Mm -hmm. overall, women are still seen as lesser than men, you know, even after civil rights and the Voting Act and all these things Mm -hmm. that has continued. An interesting thing that I learned, all women were denied the right to have their names on a loan, unless a, a male like their husband or their father had signed for them. This was happening until the Equal Credit Opportunity Act was passed in 1974. So think about that. Women were working. They were earning a living. I mean, they could be completely financially independent, but they couldn't build credit or gain access to loans without the permission Mm -hmm. of a man until 1974. And that's just addressing personal property. In the business world, women couldn't get equal access to capital until 1988, when the Women's Business Ownership Act was passed.
0: 1988. Yeah, in our lifetime. Yes. In, in my
1: lifetime in 1988, I was at the I remember being at the movies with my grandfather watching Who Framed Roger Rabbit. If you look back in history, Adele and Rihanna were born that year. Digital cell phones were invented that year. Like this is not some archaic far away no. time. This is very recent and that meant that until 1988, women could not get a loan or get additional capital to start or grow a business.
0: Crazy. Yes. And I, I'm trying to look back 1988, I would have been three, three and a half years old. So Mm -hmm. I was not in the movie theater watching (laughs) Roger Rabbit, (laughs) but still in my lifetime. Yeah. And when we fast forward 32 years to the hundredth anniversary of the 19th amendment, things have certainly changed. But if we just revisit that clip that we started with and keep in mind that 50 years. That was 50 years after the amendment had passed. I think, you know, the question that comes to my mind is, have we done enough? Has the vote that was granted after a 72 year battle been able to give all women, white and black and brown and indigenous women, the equality that they demanded and deserved? I think it's a question we all should be asking ourselves. Yeah. And I think when it comes to voting specifically, it should be as easy and convenient as possible. But the truth is, even today, in many cases, it isn't. And so I thought maybe we could just talk a little bit, some of the research that I was recently doing, just to get some examples and understand this a little bit more in depth. Uh, When we look across the U.S., politicians are still today passing measures, making it harder to cast a ballot, particularly for Black people, people living with disabilities poor people, the elderly, based on the current efforts being made to suppress the vote, this is still a battle that we're facing. And so I it's, we don't have a lot of time to go into details, but I thought maybe we could challenge our listeners here to google things like mm-hmm. voter ID laws, gerrymandering, voter registration restrictions, voter purges. Felony disenfranchisement, those are all examples of efforts being made to suppress the vote, which have an disadvantage, Black people, people living with disabilities, the elderly. Um, All of this is, to me, a reminder that oppression morphs and shifts over time. Just as we see with racism, power is not shared easily, and it is not granted or given. And I wish we had more time to talk about this, because I would love to dig into more of the details of what went on for Black women during the suffrage movement, but I think it'd be a disservice if we didn't honor the resilience of the many African-American women suffrages who, despite all the odds against them, fought tirelessly to pave the way for universal equality at the ballot and beyond. So if you don't mind, I would love to close by listing some of the resilient, intelligent, determined Black women who fought tirelessly for all women rights, including Black women. So do you mind if we, maybe I just list a few and our listeners can Google them at a later time? I think that's great. And there's so many amazing quotes
1: and examples of the action impact that they had that, yeah, I agree with you completely. Like we don't have enough time here to cover it, but they're just the bravery
0: um, yeah. and
1: the just the way they stuck to their
0: values and their moral, morals was really just so impressive. Totally agree, Jess. There's many that I've probably left off, but thought I'd share some that maybe we have heard of, but maybe some that I don't even remember li- reading about in my history books in school. So, all right, here I go. Sojourner Truth, Ida B. Wells Barnett, Charlotte Van Dean Fortin, Harriet Fortin Puvis, Margareta Fortin, Dorothy Height, Mary Church Terrell, Angelina Weld Grimk, Mary Ann Shad Carey, and Mary Talbert. So I'd love maybe just to end our time today with a challenge, with um, some inspiration for us as we celebrate the 19th Amendment. What if we celebrated the 19th Amendment by recognizing that the true victory was not won in 1920, nor was it won in 1965 with the Voting Rights Act, And it still has not been won. What if the unlearning of our whitewashed history, along with the uplifting and remembering of our African-American and our white sisters impact on universal suffrage could give us the power to move mountains, could give us the strength and the influence to break down the existing barriers to achieving true gender equality? And what if we let black women lead? All of these what-ifs aren't intended to underestimate the significance of any one event or person, but rather to challenge us to get real with our history and hopefully motivate us to constantly pursue the truth. After all, the truth will set us all free. We are learning so much from others that on each episode, we want to feature a thought leader or a resource that is impactful to us. This episode's featured follow is Women's Vote Centennial Initiative. Nearly a hundred years ago, women around the U.S. protested, picketed, and were imprisoned to secure their constitutional right to vote. Today, only 19.6% of elected officials in Congress are women. And during the 2016 presidential election, one in every three women eligible to vote did not cast a ballot. 2020 Women's Vote Centennial Initiative stands proudly on the shoulders of the brave and brilliant suffragists as they honor their legacy and continue the unfinished business of creating a more equal and just society. Learn more about their work at www.2020centennial.org. You can also follow them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. After listening to this
1: episode, whether on your own or with your work teams family, or friends, we'd love to leave you with the moment of celebration. When the 19th Amendment was ratified 100 years ago, cities across the country rang bells in celebration. Bree and I are asking you to join the I Ring the Bell campaign to share a cause you care about. Here's how it works. Shoot a cell phone video, sort of selfie style, and in the video, tell us who you are and what cause you're ringing a bell for today and actually ring a bell if you have one, or you can get a great cool sound effect if you're super savvy. And once you've done that, use the hashtag I ring the bell so we can all celebrate together. Your cause can be anything, ending domestic violence, fighting for disability rights, advocating for racial equality, mentoring of young people in your community. As long as it matters to you, it counts. We want to be loud and we want this activity of community and solidarity to spark a conversation about how far we've come and how far we have to go. Join us in celebrating the women whose resilience and passion paved the way for women and girls today.
0: As we embark on this journey of unlearning, we are so thankful that you're here. We are excited to continue unpacking this conversation around race equity and intersectionality together. Stay connected with us. Visit our website at
1: lunchandunlearn.com and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also follow us on Instagram
0: at Lunch and Unlearn and Facebook at Lunch and Unlearn. We hope you'll grab lunch with us again and join us for more brave conversations next time.